So where are you planning to go for a summer vacation? Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're hitting the road, and even the river, to meet some people who'll inspire us to embrace life with a traveler's gusto. Road food experts Jane and Michael Stern are back with some fun suggestions for finding uniquely American destinations, where the local cuisine is almost culinary folk art. Let's head through what Jane and I like to call the Tenderloin Belt. Indiana, Illinois, and Southern Iowa. Illinois. Southernmost. Later in the hour, we'll meet a seasoned river guide who ditched his urban life to lead adventurous travelers down some of the classic whitewater rivers of the world. Hefe Aronson joins us for a taste of whitewater fun and to remind us that you're never too old to get wet. Some guy who's an accountant or a corporate officer, they're whooping and hollering and laughing, and it's just, it's, that's what it's all about. We'll start out with travel reports from your favorite road trips. Get in, sit down, and buckle up. It's Travel with Rick Steves. You've got a full tank and a little time to spare. I'm Rick Steves, and we're hitting the road, at least for part of the hour ahead, as we enjoy the simple pleasure of a road trip. Coming up, Jane and Michael Stern have more suggestions for classic regional American meals that are worth driving out of your way for. And later, we'll get inspired to try a whitewater expedition with a veteran river guide. Let's open the hour with your calls to 877-333-RICK and your emails to radio at ricksteves.com to tell us about your favorite road trip. Sean's on the phone in the Bronx, New York. Sean, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Got an idea about road tripping? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people think about traveling up and down Highway 1 on the West Coast in California, but a lot of folks don't think much about US 1 on the East Coast, and it's a really, really great road trip to go north to south. Wow, from Canada all the way down to Florida? That's right. So it starts right at the north end of Maine, the Canadian border, and goes all the way down to Key West. And you've got a real cross-section of America in between, I think. It's a big change from Maine down to Key West. What are the highlights for you when you take that trip? Well, up in the north in Maine, of course, you've got kind of rural New England, and you come from there down into the more industrial centers in Massachusetts and Connecticut. New York City's on the way. The nation's capital is there. And then, of course, from there, you get down into the south where uh, you come inland a little bit and you've got rural southern lands and the mountains and then down through Georgia and into Florida, which is, of course, another experience again. So, When you do this, Sean, you get a change in culture and that means a change in, in road cuisine. What food do you look forward to in the rest stops from north to south? Oh, the food's fantastic. So you've got uh, lobster, of course, in Maine, which is really great. And then coming down into New York City, you've got the classic pizza and hot dogs and so forth. Come into the South, of course, and you've got some fantastic barbecue in Virginia and North Carolina, South Carolina, real regional barbecue cuisines there, all three of them different. And then coming down into Georgia and Florida, you've got seafood, of course, which you've got all along the way, but really fantastic once you get into the Florida area. So it sounds like you do this trip uh, a fair amount. Uh, Well, I've done it a couple times, and I've really enjoyed it both times. Sounds good. Thank you very much. Good idea. Thanks, Rick. Yep, happy travels. You too. And Diane in Tucson, Arizona, emails us, and she says, No visit to Ireland is complete without a road trip around Western Ireland. I especially recommend some of the more remote places, like the Beira Peninsula, where you can get nice and lost. In Western Ireland, the trip is really your destination as you'll be surrounded by beautiful scenery, and you'll stumble across local sites like tiny cemeteries and churches that just aren't listed in your guidebooks. Boy, that's very good advice from Diane in Tucson. Uh, I always think that in Ireland, yeah, the trip is the journey. I've actually stood out there in the middle of nowhere, hitchhiked in whichever direction the cars are coming. Hop in the car, they say, where are you going? I say, Ireland. Just make a friend. One great thing about Ireland is you can make friends everywhere you go. And if you make a point to get off the beaten path, the people will welcome you not as part of the economy, but as part of the party. And in Ireland, I get this wonderful sensation that I'm understanding a foreign language. And it makes it even better when the people have the gift of gab. They've got all day long to get into a fun conversation with you. And as Diane mentioned, it's the west coast of Ireland that really is the best for that kind of a road trip, a Celtic road trip. And Joan's on the line in Alta, Iowa. Joan, thanks for your call. You're welcome, Rick. Good to talk to you. Yeah. Thoughts on road tripping? Once my husband and I took an unplanned trip from our home in northwest Iowa to the Black Hills. We were young, and we didn't have kids. And I said that I thought it was awful that I'd grown up in the Midwest, and I had never been to Mount Rushmore. Hmm which is on the far side of South Dakota. And it was a Friday night. My husband said, well, let's go. 
So it was 10 o'clock on a Friday night. We got in our car, uh, used Chevy Citation, and we drove all night through all of South Dakota. And my husband did most of the driving because he's a night owl. And when I woke up, we were close to the Black Hills. And waking up on the plains in the back of a Chevy Citation is a is the sort of experience you do when you're <laughs> 20-something and broke and don't have money for a motel. I remember, yeah. Yeah. So um, we drove up this very steep hill, and the park was just opening, and we saw the guys on the mountain and did a few other little touristy things, and my husband said, what else do you want to do? And I said, I saw what I came to do, so I'm ready to go home. So we <laughs> headed all the way back home, and we got home 23 hours after we had started our trip. And you saw the guys on the hill. Yeah, the four guys, <laughs> the four big the, guys. The four big guys. Yeah. <laughs> How did you um, entertain yourself on the drive? Because that's um, some pretty flat country between home yeah, and the, and the four guys, isn't it? It's some pretty flat country, but I'm... I'm a kid who grew up on the prairie, and I love the wide-open spaces, so oh. I don't find it boring. For people who grew up in um, mountainous places or places where there are lots of trees, I think it's really difficult to travel through open spaces, but I'm used to that. Yeah. I lived briefly in western Washington for a year, and I felt extremely claustrophobic that oh. year. Oh, really? Yeah, because mm-hmm. you like the big sky and the wide-open spaces. I do, and actually Iowa has just as big a sky as Montana. And you're lucky to have a husband that's ready to take off at 11 p.m. <laughs> and drive you to the four big guys on the hill. Yeah, yeah, that's great. <laughs> All Very right. memorable. Joan, that's such a fun idea. Thanks for no, your call. Thank you. Okay, Bye-bye. bye now. It's time to grab your favorite travel partner, hop in the car, take a road trip. What a fun idea. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and we'd love to get your emails at radio at ricksteves.com. Right now... We're talking road tripping in the United States and beyond. Patrick from Indiana Town, Florida, emails us and writes, My favorite road trip was a drive from Valence in France to Torino in Italy. Unbelievable views and a nice picnic. Boy, that's important when you're making a road trip. Drop by a market, stock the pantry in the back seat, find an atmospheric spot to enjoy a little high-class low cuisine. We have another email from Jesse in Shoreline, Washington, and Jesse writes, It might seem like an unlikely, quote, road trip, but for our honeymoon, my husband and I flew overseas and drove all over southern Spain. My parents were stationed there when I was born, so we enjoyed finding the house I lived in as a small child, as well as visiting the great hill towns like Arcos de la Frontera and exploring our favorite Spanish city of all, Sevilla. Southern Spain was great to explore by car. Well, second that idea. Uh, of course, you might want to do the big cities by train and then pick up your car when you're ready to leave the big cities and then get into the route of the Pueblos Blancos. That's the literally the route of the whitewashed hill towns. It's just a charm bracelet of little Arabic-style hill towns nestled up in the mountains of southern Spain. And Giti is on the line in Los Altos, California. Giti, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you so much. And tell us about your favorite idea about uh, road tripping. Well, my favorite, you know, is um, uh, over in Europe. We had a trip, uh, 1998. We started from Paris, uh, renting a car with my family. And then um, from Paris, we, we went to uh, Reims, and we visited the uh, cathedral, which is 13th century cathedral. And that was my son's recommendation. He was in sophomore year at high school. and Your 13-year-old son recommended you to see the Gothic cathedral in Reims. Oh, yes. What an impressive young man. Oh, really, he is. <laughs> he is. And he has, you know, a history of art and, you know, at school. So I think he's, uh, you know, a teacher also, you know, yeah. uh, kind of lead him to where to, to go when you go to Europe. Wow. That's a great town, by the way. And I say Reims, just so people can understand, R-E-I-M-S. But in French, I believe it rhymes with France. It's called Reims. Reims. Uh, that's right. It's famous for the cathedral and for the Champagne, right? This is Champagne region. Oh, that's right. That's true. And then we went to Ulm, which is in Germany. And then um, our best part of their trip was going through Bavaria and see the Neustein Castle. Neuschwanstein. Neuschwanstein. The the Disney Castle of southern Germany, yes. Now, did your 13-year-old boy like the Neuschwanstein Castle? 
That was his recommendation, too. Oh, he was your tour guide from beginning to end, I see. (laughs) You know, uh, that's one way, Giti, to keep a a 13-year-old engaged in the trip is let them make some of the sightseeing decisions. Absolutely, absolutely. And he was so excited, and he made it really pleasant for us. You know, he was just, like, teaching us in some point. (laughs) And if it's his idea, he'll have a positive attitude about it, and uh, everything will go better. Absolutely, and he's a really world traveler now. (laughs) That's great. Now, for the long drives, how did you keep a 13-year-old amused in the car? He was fine with helping his dad with the map, you know, the direction and everything. Oh, yeah. Then I had my youngest son, who was 8 years old. uh, You You had an 8-year-old and a 13-year-old? Yeah. Now, did they just want to go from McDonald's to McDonald's, or did you get them to eat (laughs) the local food? I mean, in Paris, we did go to McDonald's, but, you know, on the way, we just didn't find, you know, McDonald's very much. But they tried, you know, what's good about traveling, and so your kids get to try the food, you know, now this was food. this was a decade ago, and now your kids are much older, they're college age. When you look back on this whole experience, what sort of mental or, or um, worldview souvenirs did your children receive when you took them to Europe uh, back on that two-week road trip? It's interesting. My oldest son, who really guide us, you know, and, uh, you know, into these trips, he really has a lot of adventure, and he really loves to travel. And now he's, you know, he's working overseas, and he feels very comfortable. So he's and comfortable my... in the world. We <laughs> took our kids every year, and now they go without mom and dad. Giti, thanks, right? <laughs> thanks for your call, Giti. Happy travels. Thank you very much, Rick. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Jerry emailed us, and he wants to know, when driving around Europe, I'm told not to leave stuff in the car, but our plans are to camp and we'll not have a hotel to park our baggage in, so what do we do to secure our luggage during the day in the cities when we're leaving from the car? Well, I would say just have a car that has a trunk instead of an open back and leave your luggage there in a paid lock. I would remind you that if you ever take a cheap option to park your car that's not guarded, Thieves know darn well which cars are tourists' cars and which cars are not, and they're more likely to break into the tourists' car. Take your valuables with you in a money belt. Leave the rest of your valuables in the car. If you have anything precious, don't leave it in the bag. The bag's likely to get taken. They're not going to gather up your your books and your souvenirs and and so on. So if I've got a journal or, or something particularly precious to me but worthless to anybody else, I take it out of the bag and lay it next to my luggage in the trunk. And then if somebody does steal my bag, which has happened to me on a number of occasions, they don't get my sentimental precious things. They just get all my trashy, worthless stuff that they realized was stupid to steal in the first place. Leave your valuables in your car or in your hotel room. It's more safe than carrying a day bag with you. The single item that's most likely to get ripped off or lost as you travel is your day bag. As soon as you let your guard down, as soon as somebody distracts you, uh, you get jostled. It's the day bag that's gone. Okay, a good road trip includes a change of scenery, and gets you off the freeway to take in the local atmosphere. And it's got to come with a few old-style diners and roadside stands where you can munch local specialties you just can't find at home. Up next, Jane and Michael Stern add some sugar and spice to our domestic travel plans with more ideas for regional road food that can be a destination in itself. Forget the odometer. It's Travel with Rick Steves. I'm David Sedaris from the United States, and I travel with Rick Steves. Wait. Je voyage. Wait, would I say je voyage souvent? De temps en temps, je voyage avec Rick Steves. Wow. You've picked up that French very well. De temps en temps, pas toujours, mais de temps en temps, je voyage avec mon ami Rick Steve. you got to sound like Maurice Chevalier or something, and it's it's actually good, or Inspector Pichot. Well, so many Americans, too. 
you know, like I've got a friend in Paris, probably the least self-conscious person I know. In elle parle français comme ça. Yeah. And when you go to a restaurant, excusez-moi, mais j'ai commandé <laughs> la salade niçoise sans la tone. <laughs> oh. Anywhere you travel, food's a big part of the fun. The classic American trip is the road trip. The integral part of road tripping is road food. Of course, in the United States, the people who wrote the book on road food, Jane and Michael Stern, are joining us. We're going to talk about some itineraries where you might want to turn your travel dreams into tasty reality. Jane and Michael, thanks for joining us. Hey, Rick. Good Hi, to see Rick. you. So you've got, your main book is Road Food. This is sort of a perennial. You bring it out every couple of years since, what, 1978? The first edition came out in 1978, and Road Food is the cornerstone of our work. I mean, that is what we've been doing for the last 30-plus years, which is driving around the country looking for really good stuff to eat. And you are living proof that you can eat road food like there's no tomorrow and uh, 30 years later still be looking for your next hamburger. Yeah. Um, In fact, I just had my cholesterol done. It was 158. So maybe this is health food. Whoa. But I know from talking to you in the past that it's the bottom line is not healthy. Uh, The bottom line is what's tasty and fun. You got it. Absolutely. And the two can go together. Sure. I mean, not all road food has to be deep fried or, you know, pie. And and the other important part of that bottom line is that it's food that really reflects the region where it is. I mean, that's really one of our fundamental uh, criterions for finding road food, which is to find places that really are unique to that area. I get that sense when I look through your books is that you, you're sort of on a crusade uh, to give us an alternative to the soulless chain food sort of tide that's sweeping the country and find cuisine. It's folk art, isn't it? It's very much folk art. And when Michael and I started crisscrossing the country in our little Volkswagen uh, back in, I think we actually started the research in 1972, there were no fast food franchises except the occasional McDonald's. Mm-hmm. There was no Chili's. There was no Red Lobster, There, were, you know, and, and all of those. Um, so the landscape has changed very much since we started doing this. Now, when you talk about road food as edible folk art, what do you mean? Well, it's an expression not only of people's hunger, but of their history, their identity. You know, uh, so much road food has to do with people's backgrounds, where they came from, you know, borrowing something from the old country, using new world ingredients. I mean, whether it's a garbage plate in Rochester, New York, or hill country sausage in Texas, which has a very strong Central European accent, virtually all American food, unless we're talking about Native American, has roots somewhere else, you know, mm. and it took hold here. And you do get that in your travels. You can get a little mirror into the ethnicity of the region. And in modern times, you've got a lot of Asian food. But of course, historically, Americans came from Europe. And uh, we've got all of these uh, Czech and Polish and German and Norwegian. And Cornish. Michael and I were just up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan eating Cornish pasties. Cornish. There's people from Cornwall then that actually have come over historically. Where's this? They Uh, were miners. They were miners, a lot of them. And for a while, they're not so much anymore. But back in the 70s when we started, there were more pasty restaurants in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan than there were hamburger places. Do you know why the, what the pasty, the design of a pasty has to do with miners? Yes. 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 Tell me. Yes. Tell me. Yes. yes, we do. <laughs> Good. I'm just trying to tell you. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. I'm so glad you asked. What's so great about a pasty, it, it's, it's self-contained and it's portable. It's like an empanada. Kind of or... like a big empanada, exactly. And you can so have was... dirty minerals on your fingers and still eat it because you got that handle that you throw away. Well, you, you heat it up over your shovel. So, um, is that miners, right? Yes, ah, miners cool. have shovels. And I, I, I learned in England that there was tin mining, and, and you wouldn't want to, your hands would be filthy and, and poison almost. So they would come from home with this uh, pasty that, that had the, the thick handlebars on it, kind of, that was made out of the oh, bread, and they would throw that wow. away. So if you got dirty hands on the road, you can have your pasty. If you got a shovel and a fire, you can heat it up. <laughs> the pasties that you will find today in northernmost Michigan do not have the handles. Oh, they don't. Most people actually okay. eat them with knife and fork, I'm sorry to say. Oh, that's a disappointment. My favorite road food in southwest England is that Cornish pasty. But it is interesting that you got that ethnic connection that way. We just found one in Maine. We, we stumbled upon the Ploy Festival, P-L-O-Y-E, uh-huh. and that's um, 
Acadian. It's Acadian, uh, way up in northernmost Maine, near the international boundary, you know, where there are a lot of Acadians who settled. A ploy is a buckwheat pancake, which uh, potato farmers love to grow buckwheat because it replenishes the soil very quickly. And what they did with the buckwheat was to make flour from it. And they make these wonderful, kind of rather elegant crepes. But they're real farm food. When I say elegant, I don't mean fancy. Right. These are the fundamental bread stuff on the Acadian table up in northernmost Maine. What is Acadian? Acadian is the French people who settled in Canada. Oh, okay. uh, some of them, of course, then went down to Louisiana. And became Cajuns. Who, who be, and they became Cajuns. That's a whole other story. I bet. So when you think Cajun road food, what do you think? Well, um, oh my gosh. <laughs> funny you should ask. Jambalaya, crawfish pie, a mio mayo. <laughs> right, etouffee, uh, Boudin sausage. Uh, uh, cracklins. So we're talking um, folk art still. And I, I want to just finish off this whole notion of folk art. So there's no famous chefs or a single creative genius that sort of dictates this. This is really grassroots traditional food from the old country that we still have today. And you could call it American cuisine, couldn't you? That is what we what we call American cuisine. I mean, we have some great chefs who are creating wonderful dishes, and that's great, but it has very little to do with kind of the experience of the people in this country. What we like is food as folk art. I remember there was some celebrity chef back in the 80s. This is as close as Michael and I ever came to having a stroke, a mutual stroke, because he actually said to one of the newspapers, I have finally invented American cuisine. And oh. it's like, hello. Hello. You know, Go for a drive. Guess what? <laughs> it's been there for a really long time. So this really is a celebration of American culture, and that's uh, what we're talking about today. Road Food USA. We're talking with Jane and Michael Stern. Their website is roadfood.com. Uh, their classic perennial book, which is updated every couple of years, is Road Food. What is it? Uh, 600 pages of listings of great things to eat and places to stop as you're driving around. The other book that they've written is 500 Things to Eat Before It's Too Late, featuring all these slices of American cuisine. Jane and Michael, let's think about some itineraries. What if somebody's driving around Texas? What would they have on their checklist of important things to eat as part of their cultural experience? Probably the most important and most purely Texan experience you could have is going to one of the old-time barbecue parlors in the heart of Texas, just uh, a little bit east of Austin. There, there are maybe a half dozen or more restaurants where there are no utensils, no plates. You actually walk up to the barbecue pit. You say, I would like a half pound of brisket and a couple of sausages. The pitmaster takes the brisket, whomps off about a half pound worth of slices, puts it on butcher paper, puts your sausages on butcher paper, maybe gives you a stack of saltines, wraps the whole thing up in butcher paper. It's your job to carry it to a table and eat it, preferably with your fingers, because it is really <laughs> finger-licking good. That sounds very classic Texas pitmaster helping you have a good meal. Jane, what's another idea on uh, Texan cuisine? Bud Royer? Oh, yes. Uh, pecan pies. People think that the Deep South is pecan territory, but our favorite pecan pie is in Round Top, Texas. Um, it's a, the Round Top Cafe. Bud Royer is the name of the, the cook. And Rick, these pecans are the size of shoes. I mean, I don't, I, they're Texas-sized pecans, so sweet and so delicious that I think – now, it, that's it, near Austin too, isn't it, yep. Ram it's all, We're all yeah. talking – we're talking central Texas here. Okay. Let's talk about uh, the southeast. If you're driving from Georgia down to Florida, what would some things to, to look for there be? You want to find a great fish camp. I'm thinking of Skipper's Fish Camp in Darien, Georgia – Whitey's Fish Camp, uh, just south of Jacksonville. These are places, as the name suggests, that are as informal as a restaurant can be. You know, you can park your RV there. Most of them you can pull up by boat as well as in your car. And the, the menu is preferably local catfish, not farm-raised catfish. I mean, farm-raised is fine, but when you've had a wild-caught catfish, I mean, the rich, woodsy flavor of that will put any farm-raised one to shame. And, of course, homemade hush puppies, not store-bought kind, not the kind you buy a mix, but just the nice little round ball seasoned with a little bit of onion and spiked with cayenne pepper, perfect next to wild-caught catfish. And if you're in that area, one of the places you must go to is St. Augustine 
Florida, which uh, not only is home of the Fountain of Youth, but more importantly, it is home to datil peppers, D-A-T-I-L. These peppers are unique to that particular part of Florida. Aren't They're, they Menorcan originally? They, well, originally they were brought by Menorcans who came here, stopped in the Caribbean. This is all conjecture, but they probably stopped in the Caribbean, got seeds for these datil peppers, which are very similar to habaneros in that they have that kind of flowery, fruity heat. And only in and around St. Augustine will you find Menorcan clam chowder. Uh, and it's spectacular. It's really, it's fiery hot and very uh, zesty in, huh. in ways that aren't unique to the pepper. Jane and Michael, I hear you talk about you have to have the, the wild, not the farm-raised catfish, and you want the homemade hush puppies. You know, when you update your book, have you seen the whole scene evolving? And what do you lament? What is dying out? And, and, and what are the new discoveries? Well, it's very, very interesting because it's kind of a two-way street. In one hand, sometimes it's difficult for these little places in, the, you know, way out in the boondocks to stay in business. On the other hand, if they do stay in business and they get notoriety, which they do from us and from many other press sources, they Instead of going towards convenience food or fast food, they in fact go back to the roots and maybe they're not getting frozen hush puppies. They're really going to make the effort to make them by hand. Or if they're, if they're doing key lime pie, they actually, they don't just get key lime concentrate. They get, uh, you know, they go to somebody's backyard and get this tiny little key limes. So we find there's actually more care taken with the food than there used to be. We're talking Road Food USA. We're joined by Jane and Michael Stern. Uh, their book, Road Food, uh, just is the Bible. If you want to have a book in the backseat of your car as you're driving around, know what kind of slices of American folk cuisine you can eat in your road trip. I know you have uh, several hundred new listings in a, in a new edition of Road Food. What are some of the... You've been doing this for 30 years. Have, do you discover anything new, or is it all just more hot dogs and hush puppies? Oh, no. No, no. We, I mean, we discover, I mean, they're new to us. I mean, obviously, yeah. we're not discovering something. But I mean, something. new dishes, not new places. Of course, you'll find new places. But are there well, new, are there new uh, dishes that, that you We just realize? found Yaka Main. Yaka Main, yes. What uh, is that? Is, that has been around for a long time. We, I must admit, had never heard of it uh, until we started looking around New Orleans. Yaka Main is a dish with very cloudy origins. Some believe it was a bring back by African-American soldiers from the Korean War. Others think it was made by cooks on the railroad who were trying to please both African-American and Chinese workers. It's a kind of low-main dish with a, with a Tabasco zest, with a hard-boiled egg on top, and a mixture of Worcestershire sauce and mystery spices. Uh, it's not unique to New Orleans, but it seems that New Orleans is where it has taken hold the firmest. You will also find it sometimes around the Chesapeake Bay or even in Chicago or Cleveland. And speaking of the Chesapeake Bay, didn't we just find Smith Island cake? Yeah, who knew? Yes. <laughs> Smith Island cake, little did we know, it's actually the state dessert of Maryland. But, you know, unless you're a, a patriotic Marylander, who would know? It's made only on Smith Island, which is one of the two inhabited islands in the Chesapeake Bay, made by a population there who basically speak Elizabethan English because they are so unhomogenized with the rest of the country. It's a multi-layer cake that probably most resembles a Hungarian dobosh tort. Hmm. It's about eight or ten micro-thin layers with frosting in between each of them. Isn't that fun when you've been at this for 30 years that you can still discover something and you go, how did that thing hide out? And oh, people have been loving this so for generations. It's so wonderful. I find that in, in my work in Europe is you can never I'm exhaust sure. it but what it has. And you kind of go, wow, that's just an inspiration to me to keep going and remember there's all sorts oh, of good absolutely. folk culture yet to be eaten in the United States. <laughs> yeah. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jane and Michael Stern about road food. Their website's roadfood.com. Jane and Michael, Give us a little um, edible entertainment as we drive through those vast, flat stretches of the Midwest. Oh. Michael is from those vast, flat stretches of the Midwest. Yeah, Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> that big, flat city. No, it's, I mean, the Midwest, it, it, people often ask, what's our favorite region of the country to eat in? I sometimes say the Midwest because of the unbelievable variety you know, you have the cities with, you know, like 82 different ethnic populations in them. But for our trip, let's go further south and let's head through what Jane and I like to call the Tenderloin Belt. Indiana, Illinois, and Southern Iowa. Southern Illinois. Southernmost, mm -hmm. where 
restaurants vie with each other, and I'm not kidding about this, to make the best tenderloin. And tenderloin in this case being pork that has been hammered as thin as a Wiener schnitzel, deep fried, so it's the size of a huge dinner plate, and then paradoxically served on a tiny little hamburger Ooh. bun. Ah. So it kind of extends about 10 inches in every direction. And a bad one isn't so good, but a good one really is like the best Wiener schnitzel you ever ate. I mean, crisp, elegant, juicy, and crisp at the same time. Right. But that's but it's pork, and this is pork growing. Uh, yeah, well, this growing is pork country, country yeah. And, and, and through. Talking you to want... you guys about food is like I, I feel like I'm in a fantasy park here and it's just never <laughs> ending. I, I just think this is I want to get in my station wagon and drive all day long. And we'll eat drive all to our of... house and we'll, we'll take you somewhere. <laughs> but let me just say you, you have to go to Huntington, Indiana is where supposedly it was invented in 1904. There's a whole story about it. But if you go to Huntington, Indiana and you have a tenderloin at Nick's Kitchen, you must and I insist you must have butterscotch pie afterwards. This is butterscotch pie not made from a mix. This is butterscotch pie like some farm wife is making. Whoa. Okay, so we've got plenty of reasons to visit the Midwest. Take me on a trip through Southern California, and what should I not miss when I've got the munchies and I'm on the interstate? If you're heading from from Las Vegas to Los Angeles, you're going to be going through the desert. You want to stop in Indio and get a date shake. This is a milkshake made with date crystals, you know, the date palms grow there. And this is like, it's rich and fruity in a way that no other milkshake is. I, I'm thinking of fish tacos oh, yeah. in La Jolla, down around mm. there. In La Jolla, there's a place called The Cottage that has the best fish tacos in the world. And then for the carnivores, uh, is it Manhattan Beach where Hodad's Ho is? Dads, yes. This is like a surfer hamburger joint. I love the motto. This is the motto of Hodad's. It's no shirt, no shoes, no problem. <laughs> that is an attitude that we can all enjoy. I like that. Lots of good food all over the country. Doesn't have to cost a lot. You don't need to dress up. And it's folk culture. We've been enjoying road food with Jane and Michael Stern. Jane and Michael, best wishes with your work, and thanks for pointing us in the right direction when we're hungry on the road and want to eat some American culture. Bye-bye, Rick. Bye, Rick. Enjoy yourself, enjoy yourself. It's later than you think. Get out and see the world. Next, it's time to get wet as river guide Hefe Aronson tells us what it is about a whitewater river that draws you in, besides the current, that is. The pleasure of a guided river rafting expedition is next on Travel with Rick Steves. A lot of people think I have a good job, but I think one of the greatest jobs around would be a river rat, a river raft captain, a river tour guide. And I'm joined today by a man who's been leading tours on rivers uh, with rafters through whitewater for years all over the United States. Hefe Aronson, thanks for joining us. Hi, Rick. Great to be here. Boy, what a cool job, Hefe. Tell us, what it's. how did you get into river rafting, first of all? Well, I was pretty lucky. You know, I uh, sort of escaped Chicago, a um, little Jewish ghetto that I lived in in Chicago when I was 17. And... We traveled across the states towards Los Angeles where my father was going to work. And, um, of course, you can't pass up the Grand Canyon. And uh, we sort of did a detour to the Grand Canyon. And uh, I guess I wouldn't be exaggerating to say it knocked my socks off. And I, <laughs> I just knew I had to work, live, and play there for the rest of my life. And I spent the next few years uh, aiming towards that goal. And fortunately, I, I've made it. There's certain skills that it takes to be a successful river uh, raft guide. What are, those, what are the skills of a good river guide? Well, you know, it's taken me years to uh, get them down. Of course, you always have to have your uh, whitewater skills. You have to have, be able to get your boat through the through the rapids safely. And, and of course, you have to be able to um, keep people who are way out of their element calm and poised and sort of ready for the magic. But, you know, you, we cook gourmet meals and bake cakes and... We take them on hikes and we do a lot of geology talks and interp of natural history and show them Indian ruins. I mean, it goes the gamut from the what seems to be mundane to uh, what you would expect of an outdoor guide. So you got to be a boatman for sure, but you also got to be a cook, a professor, a jester, storyteller. Mm. 
musician? Yes, indeed. Yeah, I, I happen to play uh, guitar a lot. So, you know, at the end of a long day, you know, we pull into camp and we set up the kitchen and we set up the facilities and we put the fire together and, hmm. and then we take a quick break. But usually I'll pull my guitar out and either tell stories or play music. And uh, it's really great to watch the folks' faces. I mean, ideally, a guide knows how to get out of the way and let people experience the magic and sort of we're doing things in the background, hopefully, and they don't really notice. I suppose that's a fundamental thing. It's about the river, not about the guide. Oh, yeah. No, it took, you know, I mean, when you're 20 years old and you're, and you're sort of everybody's hero, it, you know, it's hard to get that. But it took me quite a few years. I mean, years later, I would come up across people who had done a river trip, my first thing would be often to say, well, who are your river guides? And they would probably forget. Right. <laughs> and sometimes they'd forget the outfitter too, but they always remembered I was on a river and they would tell <laughs> you these fantastic stories that, that just moved them and they'll never forget. And that's, that's really what's important. Well, tell me, what are the joys of rafting? Because a lot of people do a lot of things and it never occurs to them to head over to Idaho and go down the middle fork of the Salmon River. What, what is it about rafting that really turns people on? You know, I, I could say the obvious things, like, for example, on the Middle Fork, there's constantly moving water, and there's incredible fishing, and, you know, you can get to camp and go soak in a natural hot springs right next to the edge of the river, or you could go to the Rogue and watch your kid's face as he paddles a ducky through a whitewater rapid, and go on the Tuolumne and really paddle your own craft with a guide, of course, and back calling commands through challenging whitewater. Or you can go to the Colorado River and be in the most amazing place in the world in the Grand Canyon. But really, what I find people really, that just blows people's minds, to use a cliche, is the camaraderie. I mean, here are people from all different walks of life, all over the world, who might on the street just pass each other by. And within a few days, they're best friends. Hmm. And I suppose as a guide, one of your jobs, not the obvious thing, but probably very important, is to enable that camaraderie to combust. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I've seen plenty of people walk into a river trip and they've got the thousand-yard stare like, oh, my God, what have I done? You know, yeah. Where am I? And uh, they're way out of their element. And our job is to say, hey, how you doing? Come on, you know, here's the boat. And, you know, it's it's perfectly fine. It's stable. We know what we're doing. Trust us. And get them in there, and then by the end of the first day, um, you know, they get it. And uh, we tend to try to stay back a little bit. But, of course, you know, there's some entertainment involved and there's uh, education involved, as I was saying, with the wild, you know, and pointing out the stars or the wildlife and stuff. So it's really, uh, we, we look at each other sometimes and just go, wow, this is the best job in the world. <laughs> well, you're getting people out of their comfort zones. People are testing their limits. They're overcoming their fears. I'll never forget in my experience, and one of the greatest vacations I've ever had was river rafting in Idaho. And we would uh, beach the boats, and then we would hike up to this little outlook, and we'd look ahead, and we would scout the rapids, right? And our guide mm -hmm. would say, point out, you don't want to go here, and you got to lean into it here, and on and on and on. And it was scary, but it was really mm -hmm. thrilling. And then we looked at it, and then I just thought, well, they do this all the time. I guess it's safe. And, and we got through it. And, you know, we were way out of our comfort zone, and uh, it, it seemed dangerous. But, boy, what a feeling when you had survived that and gotten through it. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, some people think it's kind of a show, like we're doing that on purpose. But, you know, you could do it a hundred times. It's not like you're in Disneyland on the, you know, on a, on a rack or something. You're you're basically anything could happen, and you, we're we're setting up safety, and we're figuring out who's going first, and which clients are in which boat, and where we want them, and so it's it's pretty real, and uh, and the people sense that. I mean, they can't read rapids, but they can certainly read us. And then you know what's really really fun is uh, we get through the rapids, and some guy who's an accountant or you know or corporate officer, they're whooping and hollering and <laughs> laughing, and it's just that's that's what it's all about. That's one thing fun about river rafting is it is multi generational and it is sort of the great equalizer. It doesn't matter what your profession is or how old you are or whatever. When you're in that river, you're all in it together. Oh yeah, you know, and I mean, it was amazing. I just read on the Oars website recently that our average age of our average client is in their fifties and sixties. So, right, right. and I, how I cut my teeth uh, when I first started rafting was as a volunteer to do uh, disabled river trips. So here were folks that were blind, paraplegic, high functioning quadriplegic, cerebral palsy—you name it—and. Uh, you know, it was just, uh, you'd, it'd almost bring you to tears to watch folks drag themselves down the beach because they wanted to help wash dishes, you know. Wow. It, it, you know, that amazing. relates to, we just got an email here from uh, Bruce in uh, Visalia, California. And he said, we rafted 225 miles of the Grand Canyon with 20 other disabled athletes, mostly veterans. 
He said, I'm in a wheelchair, and uh, we were one of the first large groups ever uh, to take such a trip. And we had a film crew with us to record how persons with disabilities overcame every challenge the Colorado River and the Grand Canyon presented. What, a, what an exciting opportunity for that group to get in there and, and immerse themselves in all that natural wonder. Tell me more oh, about, yeah, about the tours that you put together for uh, people with disabilities. Well, it's it's sort of the great equalizer, you know, and after having worked in the Grand Canyon my first time around, uh, probably about a dozen years worth, and I was ready to move on and do some other rivers and do something different for a little bit, I felt like I wanted to really give something back to the Grand Canyon, and it just struck me that, you know, you know I've got these skills, I might as well see where, where it goes, and we uh, worked with the City of Phoenix, special POVs programs, and we um, worked with the Grand Canyon superintendent and his staff, and we worked with the outfitters, and we put on about a half a dozen trips in the early 90s uh, with people who, it was said by some, uh, could never even dream of doing something like that. But here were folks mm. who never thought they'd ever see a waterfall again, just gazing mm. in tears, really, mm. at the waterfalls. Or we'd cut the legs off of plastic patio chairs and tied them down solid to the rafts. And then, of mm -hmm. course, we had extra helpers holding them on through the rapids. Mm -hmm. And mm. I'll tell you what, it's a, it's a heck of a lot of work, but it is the most rewarding thing I've ever done and I could ever imagine. Who's doing uh, river rafting tours for people with disabilities now? Are there organizations that actually do that? There are several organizations. The one I originally started with, which is Environmental Traveling Companions, or ETC, out of San Francisco, they do local trips in California and the occasional Grand Canyon trip. There's another one called Splore out of Salt Lake City in Utah. Um, there's another one, I believe, in Montana. They're, they're, they're scattered all about. Uh, for the trips in the Grand Canyon, they're pretty much sponsored nowadays uh, by the outfitters themselves, the 14 or 15 or so outfitters in the Grand Canyon themselves. Okay, who, so you can connect with these companies and, and they will offer an occasional tour for people with disabilities then? They go both ways. They'll offer a, a complete trip for those folks who need the extra care and time right. for a special POPs trip. Plus, they'll also steer people towards the right company who just want to be on a regular, quote-unquote, regular trip right. and can handle whatever comes their way but just need a little bit of extra attention. So okay. they go both ways. And you get you just basically go to the Grand Canyon Outfitters website, and there's a little uh, button there to push for special populations trips. Now, any population can feel the heat of the Grand Canyon, I would think, in the middle of the day, and that would be quite both physically and, and psychologically a challenge. You feel like you're in a convection oven, I would imagine. How do you uh, get the groups to handle the heat in the Grand Canyon when they're going down there? <laughs> well, that's that's a good one. I mean, you are in the desert. Uh, fortunately, on the one hand, we're uh, on a river, so you've got water right there, and we tend mm -hmm. to we tend to keep people thinking about just getting wet. The first day or two, it's a little odd to be jumping in with all your clothes on, your river clothes in the water. But people figure it out pretty quick that, you know, uh, the people that aren't jumping in, they're looking kind of miserable. And everybody that's jumping in is looking happy as a lark. So, um, you know, it's really in the Grand Canyon or in the desert uh, rivers, it's, it's the heat and the moving the camps that are the greatest challenges. But within a couple of days, they figure it out. Do most river companies actually have the uh, the one raft that goes ahead and sets up the camp for you? No, they do tend to do that on a couple of rivers, uh, like they do on the Rogue and also on the Middle Fork of the Salmon. Mm -hmm. They'll go on downstream ahead with all the gear and a what they call a swamper, a volunteer helper. Right. And they'll pull into camp well before the rest of the folks get there and set up tents and set up la puparia, as I call it, and and uh, get everything ready so that when we uh, roll into camp, there's appetizers and everything's ready and they're, everybody's sort of tired and ready for a break and they yeah. can go get a glass of wine and relax instead of having it where you fiddle with well, setting tents up and I stuff. I suppose there's all kinds of, uh, just like there's all kinds of hotels, there's all kinds of comforts that come with various uh, rafting experiences. And I got to say, I like the luxury of having that one game. <laughs> go ahead in the big raft and then we'd come in after a glorious day in the river and appetizers were out, drinks were out, the tents were set up, the pooperia was ready. And uh, it <laughs> just was like luxury in the middle of nowhere <laughs> and I couldn't believe it. People tend to think that... Um, you know, they're going on a backpacking trip on an extreme sport. And uh, I really, you know, it's just amazing when they get there and they kind of go, oh, the raft's carrying all our gear. Well, that's kind of cool, <laughs> yeah. you know. And the only hard work so, I yeah. had was when the river was still and you had to paddle down it. And that was all right. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, what's nice about the Middle Fork, which this is the one you did, the Middle Fork of the Salmon, is it very rarely has a calm pool that you have to fight against, you right, know. Right, Unlike the Colorado River, which has a lot of flat water, but uh, it's always moving, so that makes it a lot, quite a bit easier. I'm talking with Hefe Aronson, and he works for a company called Ors, O-A-R-S, 
And uh, Hefe uh, collects his writing from his experiences on the river. You can read Hefe's writing at his website. It's river-god.com, rivergod.com. We have Paula on the line in Seattle. Paula, you read for the Colorado. Did you experience some of that flat water? Um, you know, I don't remember the flat water, but we were on great big rafts. Um, the raft was motorized, so we didn't have to row. I'm talking about luxury. It was a great ride. And you motored down the Grand Canyon, and it was a yeah. good trip? Yeah. Um, it was with Hatch Expeditions, which I think has been running the river for many years. One time we were in a pretty bad rapids. It wasn't lava, but it was some, another rapids on the, in the Grand Canyon, and the motor quit. And so our boatman was pretty jumping around in the back of the boat to get the raft under control. So it was interesting. The rafts were about 30, 30 feet long, 35 feet long. When you think of the whole package, Paula, you, of course you had the experience on the river. How was the time off the river complementing that? Did they organize walks and tell stories oh, and yeah. do the culture? We were really lucky. We went on a uh, trip with a professor of geology from Arizona State University. Just by luck, we got on this particular trip. And they'd been doing it, I think, for 13 years before um, we went uh, in 2001 or two. And um, so he did geology, and the boatman that we went down that led the expedition's father had been a boatman on the Grand Canyon. So we heard a lot of river stories. There was a lot of legends. And one night we had a ghost story uh, that scared everybody to the death. And um, so it was wonderful. It was a wonderful trip. The food was great. Companionship was great. Hmm. Sounds like a good vacation. It was. It was a wonderful vacation. You enjoyed the Colorado Jefe. I, I believe that's your, your favorite uh, tour guiding experience, isn't it, to be a, a river guide on the, on the Colorado? Oh, yeah. That's, I mean, that's where my heart lies, and, um, and, and it always will. I mean, uh, rivers in general are, are my lifeblood, but the Grand Canyon uh, and the Colorado River is, is very special to me indeed. Jefe, as a guide and somebody who's inspiring people to get in touch with this great nature and so on, what's your, uh, your personal challenge and most rewarding uh, exercise as a guide? Uh, you know, reading a poem, taking a walk, a uh, little side trip, uh, learning about the flora and the fauna. Give me a, a little example of what really turns you on as a guide with your rafters in the Colorado. It's really watching people get it, you know? I mean, I, I love telling stories, and it's pretty hard to keep me from doing it. I'll usually, I can use a turn a five-minute story into an hour story if you let me. But, um, you know, I love playing music. I really love talking about geology. I mean, in school, it was fairly boring to me. But when you're out there in the middle of it, it's just in your face. It's just the most amazing thing to think how these cliffs became and how the river can cut rock and things like that. But there's just so much, you know, looking at waterfalls and and uh, watching people's faces as their kids paddle their little kayaks through a, a whitewater rapid, something they never thought their kid would do. And I've taken so many people who are world travelers, uh, adventure travelers, down the rivers. And, you know, inevitably by the end of the day, by the end of the trip, you know, they're leaning against the coffee table and just gazing up at the stars or the sun disappearing over the cliffs, and they just look at me and go, you know, this was the most amazing experience <laughs> I've ever had in my life, and I'll never forget it. And that, to me, is what it's all about. Paula, does that resonate with you at all? Oh, it sure does. Yeah. And I, I think it's particularly wonderful when you're lucky enough to be with guides who read you poetry, right. who read you stories, and just watching the light in the canyon, you know, from early in the morning to uh, as the sun crosses over and starts to disappear and the changing of the light is most amazing. The light, the light and the colors, I would imagine, getting yep. rich and red at night. Paula, thanks for your call. Thank you. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been fantasizing, really, about great whitewater rafting experiences, mostly in the western half of the United States. And we've been joined by Hefe Aronson. Hefe works for a company called Ors, O-A-R-S. He's been guiding for decades, and uh, he's got a, a website where he collects his writing. It's river-god.com, river-god.com. Hefe, if you're thinking of just, I mean, you've had so much experience with yourself experiencing these rivers, and if you're a tour guide like me, after a while, you get m as much joy out of other people enjoying what really enthuses you as much as enjoying it yourself. Tell us just one little oh, yes. moment that just, that really... Um, crystallizes the, the joy of being on the river. 
many years ago, we experienced a flash flood once, and uh, and we got th- all the clients through safe and sound, which um, was part of what we do. And uh, and there we were at the end of a huge long day, floating down the river towards camp, and finally everybody was safe and sound, and nothing was more to look forward to except for reaching camp. And and I just remember sitting there on the boat, and everybody was quiet, and we were watching the stars come out, and just like powdered sugar on the end of a necklace and and uh, the sentinels of the dark cliffs floating past us and I was listening to the creak and the dip of the oars and people were just talking in hushed tones as if they were in a cathedral and it was you know there was nothing much to say but it we were we were pards we were there together and we'd had this incredible experience and I'll never forget those moments Hefe Aronson, I was there with you the creek and the dip of the oars in the cathedral of nature Thanks so much, and uh, happy rafting. Thank you so much. Next time you're surfing the internet, paddle over to the radio section of ricksteves.com to sign up for our Radio Waves email list. That's how we notify you of upcoming recording sessions for Travel with Rick Steves and give you a chance to be a caller on the show to talk with Rick and his guests. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks for studio help today. Go to Capital Public Radio in Sacramento and to WSHU in Fairfield, Connecticut. Production and technical help comes from Sarah McCormick, Andrew Wakeling, Robin Cronin, and Jonathan Lee. I'm the show's producer, Tim Tatton. Join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick's weekly one-hour radio program, Travel with Rick Steves, airs in more than 100 cities across the country. Listen to podcasts of past shows in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Rick's public television series, Rick Steves Europe, also airs throughout the USA. You'll find the latest on Rick's TV and radio work, as well as his guidebooks and his free-spirited European tour program at ricksteves.com.